Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today is going to be part one of a multi-part episode on uh, on a topic that I know you came back from New York with a fever for, Robert. Yes. We're yep. going to be talking about black holes. That's right. Yeah, I attended um, I attended a, a talk at the World Science Festival that I, I believe I, I mentioned uh, in our previous sort of World Science Festival roundup episode mm-hmm. uh, that I just thought did a great job of providing an overview of black holes and uh, help straighten out a few of the details for me. Yeah, I, I realize we have talked about black holes on the podcast before, but I, we haven't really, I felt, given it given them proper due. We haven't, we haven't really uh, looked at black holes with the attention that they deserve. Yeah, and of course, even in doing a multi-part series, we're not going to be able to cover every interesting thing about black holes. So this is going to be kind of a, a grab bag of things that seemed interesting to us. So in this first episode, we're going to be talking mainly about the history of the idea, where it came from, how we arrived at this bizarre conclusion about the, the, the cosmos that we live in. In the second episode, we're going to be focusing mainly on like how we get a look at these things. And in the third episode, I think we're going to explore some of the strangest avenues of thought that you can contemplate with regard to black holes. Like what's it like to fall into one or what happens when a black hole collapses? Does it does it create something on the inside? Yeah, and I want to acknowledge that black holes, are, I feel, are kind of a challenging topic to tackle. Kind I mean, of. <laughs> I mean, some people, I mean, certainly from a, like a physics standpoint, yes, but but also just in terms of becoming engaged with the idea. Because I know there are plenty of you out there like, yeah, black holes, let's do this. I love, I love science. I love science fiction. I'm thinking of, of all my favorite black hole-related movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I know other people are a little hesitant because ultimately black holes are a concept that have very little impact on our personal lives and the, the, the scope of the universe that we observe and interact in. Well, they don't have any people in them. Right. You know, you, <laughs> I mean, a lot of times I think when people look up to space and they say, you know, I, I want to be interested in it, but there's if there's no people up there, it's hard to feel like I'm following a story, a real right. narrative. You or know? can I even imagine a person there? Because obviously there are no people on Mars, but I, can, but I can imagine a future in which there are people on Mars. I can, I can imagine multiple different uh, sci-fi scenarios, uh, many of which match up reasonably well with scientific expectations and uh, and that can allow me to to engage myself in Mars more. But unfortunately, if you know anything about black holes, you know that it's not even possible to say colonize a black hole. Mm-hmm. You can't have uh, singular knots going in there to see what's on the inside. Or you could, but it just wouldn't be very useful for us on the outside or I guess very useful for those uh getting ripped apart on the inside. Right. And I think another challenge with black holes is that when they have played a key role in science fiction and been made ultimately kind of relatable concepts, uh, they, the, the, the films don't really do much with the science. Uh, they, they don't really do a great job about really conveying what a black hole is. Uh, for, for instance, I have to admit that my first introduction to black holes was the 1979 Walt Disney sci-fi movie the black hole. Oh, Robert, I've never seen this one, but I'm excited. I'm excited for you to tell me about it. So t- <laughs> tell me about it. Fill my brain. All right. Uh, well, j- j- briefly, I won't, I'll try not to go on too long about this because this is a film I loved as a child and I still look back on finally today. Uh, but it, it lands in a weird spot for a science fiction film because it's it's not as fun and original as 1977 Star Wars. And, of course, it's nowhere near as high-minded and scientifically savvy as 1968's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, what is? Instead, it's kind of an old-fashioned Jules Verne-esque tale of space explorers who wind up on a space station that's circling a black hole. And the station's run by a mad scientist whose only attendants are robots and lobotomized androids. There's ultimately some fairly horrific and, and kind of ambitious stuff mixed in there. But you're also faced with just kind of a maximum dosage of... Of, uh, of of late 70s uh, big-budget cinema. Like, all the actors you would expect to show up do show up. Ernest Borgnine, oh, Roddy yeah. McDowell. Nice. Anthony Perkins. Great. 
Maximilian Shell shows up as the villain. Oh, great. Uh, how about uh, Harry Dean Stanton? You get uh, him? No, no Dean Stanton, as I recall. And you also have one of the, the Bottoms brothers. Uh, uh, Timothy Bottoms? No, no, no. One, the, one of the other ones. Not uh, not Last Picture. Was it Last Picture Show? Yeah, Last Picture yeah. Show. Yeah, not Last Picture Show's Bottoms, uh, but, uh, but, but one of the other ones. Some other Bottoms. Yes. Okay. And also Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens? Yeah, he's the voice of a robot. <laughs> Busted up robot. It has, it has really cool robots in it. I got to see this. And the, the trailer is pretty great for it. Uh, in fact, uh, if, if, we, if we can play it, I would like to just throw in just a clip from this trailer. There is an inexorable force in the cosmos where time and space converge. A place beyond man's vision, but not his reach. It is the most mysterious and awesome point in the universe. Where the here and now may be forever. The black hole in this film, the actual black hole that we're presented with, it's 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 presented like a vortex. Mm-hmm. It's it's more in keeping with the the, the Charybdis uh, whirlpool of Greek myth. Mm-hmm. You know this this terrible thing that you're on the the verge of falling into. It's ultimately treated with more religious uh, reverence than scientific, uh, which of course is is pretty much what happens later on in the 1997 film Event Horizon. Yes, which I also love, but it's hardly a scientific tour de force. <laughs> Were you watching Event Horizon recently, Robert? Yes, I was. I I started watching it again last night, uh, but only made it about. 10 minutes in before my ambient kicked in. <laughs> that's, put a, it to bed. that's a horrible idea. No, it's it's not really. Not 10 minutes in because you, you get past the scary stuff and then you're just on a spaceship and then you realize it's time to go to bed. Yeah, I realized that the spaceship in that movie, it's like the only leather punk spaceship I've ever <laughs> seen in science fiction. It's like, you know, those like black leather wristbands with the metal studs on them. Yeah. It's that as a spaceship. It is very industrial, especially the the, the, the core that you end up exploring. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, but hopefully we'll get to talk about Event Horizon uh, a little bit more in one of the future episodes. But basically the idea is it's got a black hole and that's how you get to hell, I think. Yeah, which again is kind of the idea that is explored in Disney's A Black Hole as well. Uh, so there's people in it. You, well, there are things in it, humanoids. Uh, you end up with characters traveling through it. It's ultimately the confusing part is that both films kind of treat uh, a black hole more like a wormhole, mm-hmm. which is a separate thing uh, altogether. But that is ultimately uh, more relatable, I think, to us, the idea of like a magic tunnel that goes somewhere. Uh, but of course, actual black holes don't exist on a scale that that directly influences individual human life or life on Earth except in our study of them. But the bottom line is that they're they're just a physical reality of our universe. They're not some sort of evil, malignant force. They are just uh, a physical part of the universe. At the same time, though, I would say they are astounding and one of the most interesting things in the universe because they are the absolute extremis of of what we know about physics. They're sort of like the test cases. They're the exceptions. They, they break things. They, and for that reason, they're interesting to scientists because we can look at them and say, OK, what happens in these extreme cases where, you know, where we can't necessarily see inside to know the answer? So at this point, some of you might be asking, well, well what is a black hole? Just lay, lay out the, the basic definition. If it's not a wormhole, if it's not a gateway to hell, then, then what are we talking about here? Well, in short, we're talking about regions of space where the gravity is so intense that light cannot escape the pull. And the gravity is that intense because matter is compressed to a very small space. And they range in size. For instance, primordial black holes are no larger than a single atom, but they contain the mass of a terrestrial mountain. So Mount Everest crunched down to the size of an atom. It's pretty dense. A stellar black hole uh, might be 10 kilometers in diameter, but would boast the mass of 20 suns, for instance. And then finally, you have the supermassive black hole, uh, the, the, the types of black holes that... Uh, that, that, that live at the centers of galaxies. Uh, and these would have the, the mass of uh, millions of suns compressed to a sphere the size of a single solar system. That's extreme compression. Yeah, I mean, a, a little harder to even think about it. Like I, I find that the, the mountain atom uh, comparison is maybe a little more uh, impactful for the human imagination. But still, we're talking about considerable, considerable uh, uh, consolidation of mass. 
Now, we call them black holes because light cannot escape them. Optically, they appear as an absence. Uh, we can't see inside them, but we can observe the effect of, uh, say, of, of this intense gravity on the surrounding environment. And despite the fact that we can't see inside them, as we'll talk about a couple of times as we go along, that doesn't necessarily mean we don't see anything around them. In fact, they can often put on quite a show. Yeah. It, it, I hate to lean into the horror uh, movie um, uh, implications here, but it's kind of like imagine the uh, uh, the house from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You can't see any of the teenagers dying inside it from the outside, but you see them like moving towards the house. <laughs> you see a lot of uh, of random hippie activity on the outside, and it gives you an idea of what might be going on on the inside. Uh, I actually came up with an analogy I was going to use in the next episode, but maybe I'll go ahead and oh, say it go here. For it. So this is a little less grisly than what you said, but <laughs> kind of similar. So uh, imagine you've got like a, a haunted house ride in an amusement park and the ride, the part of the ride that you ride in is this soundproof box where nobody mm-hmm. can hear anything on the outside. So you got everybody in line to get in the ride, to get in the soundproof box and go through the haunted house. And uh, as you're herding tourists toward this soundproof box, even though you can't hear any of the screams inside the box, you will hear more and more sort of uh, nervous chatter and laughter and shrieks as people are approaching the door. But then once you shut the door, bye-bye. Ah, I like that we both independently came up with haunted house explanations for black holes. Personally, I seriously doubt that the Texas Chainsaw House is haunted. <laughs> or contains a black hole. Now, now, it's important to note in all of this that, that I really think we should try and get away from thinking of black holes as essentially galactus or, uh, or some sort of other unstoppable, insatiable cosmic devourer that just destroys and consumes everything. Right. Which is kind of hard because, as we've discussed uh, before on the show, like, that's a classic mythic trope. Like, the idea of some entity that will consume the sun. I mean, it's key to these various eclipse uh, mythologies that we've, that we've discussed in the past. But uh, a black hole is not... Uh, this thing that's just going to eat the entire universe, they're bound by physics. So stars, planets, whole galaxies may orbit around them. And I've seen it pointed out uh, before by NASA that if our sun were a black hole of equal mass, the Earth would not fall in. Yeah, that's a point I've read many times before. Uh, So what would happen to the Earth if the sun turned into a black hole? The Earth would keep orbiting. Yeah. So again, to come back to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) house, It's, uh, it's not like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house is just going to suck in everybody in the surrounding area and collapse the town. No, the town continues to thrive. Yeah, the next-door neighbors, they just keep going to work, doing their yeah, thing. keep selling barbecue. Everything's fine. And I also think, again, that the whole aspect of this is a stumbling block, as it tends to encourage us to think of black holes less as what they presumably are and more like wormholes. Ah, uh, okay. So it's like, a, it's like a tunnel you can go through. Yeah, yeah. But... Ultimately, a singularity is not a a, a gateway. It doesn't go anywhere other than to the center of its gravity. Uh, They're celestial objects that just happen to be massive on a scale that's really harder to square with human experience. Well, I can tell already, Robert, that you're running into issues with the language that we have to use to describe things uh, because there is no language. I mean, the only language we have is like normal terrestrial vocabulary and then the metaphors we build out of that normal terrestrial vocabulary. So inevitably, our language will ultimately fail to have (laughs) words that at a fundamental level really communicate the, the nature of celestial objects, you know, powerful objects. Uh, huge objects like black holes. So we, we just have to use metaphors, right? And right. The, and yeah. the idea of a black hole is a metaphor. Yeah, and it's, it's a challenge for science communication, for sure. Uh, a lot of great black hole studies come out, and then you look at the, the headlines that, uh, that are used uh, uh, right. to, to relate these findings, and uh, it's, it's, I, I often get a, a laugh out of it because the, the world leader model is so often employed. You end up here reading about cannibal black holes, gobbling black holes, eating uh, black holes, barfing black holes. Yeah, it's so anthropomorphized in a really visceral way. I mean, y- you almost want to imagine that there are articles about dating black holes, like <laughs> the swipe right black holes. But it's, it's kind of a you're damned if you do or damned if you don't situation. It's kind of like when, you, when, when we even anthropomorphize evolution to some extent. Yeah, we treat it like a person. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, you, on one hand, I acknowledge, yes, I, one should not do that. You fall into you know, potential traps uh, by doing it. Mm. But at the same time, you ultimately are trying to 
put some fairly complex uh, ideas uh, into a form that, that people can really consume. Well, you can talk about evolution without anthropomorphizing it or, you know, uh, treating it like a person with intentions. It's possible to do that. It can just get really tedious to yeah. constantly be talking that way. So we in, we inevitably in these discussions, if we're just trying to move things along and, st- you know, move at a brisk pace, we end up using this shorthand. And the same thing happens for black holes. Yeah. For black holes, we end up using these colloquial shorthands uh, to describe them that are based on Earth metaphors that don't really get at the truth of what it's like to have the geometry of space-time warped by this gravitational anomaly. Now, one of the really fascinating things about black holes, though, is that we, we, simply, we didn't simply look into the sky and observe them. Uh, it all began with the math. It began with with uh, with some some very bright individuals uh, crunching the numbers and seeing them as a possibility. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes black holes so interesting. They they weren't like stars. Mm-hmm. They weren't you know stars. We could look up and know something was there, and then over time gradually make observations to refine our knowledge of what stars are. Right? Black holes weren't like that. We had to work them out from first principles and then say, okay, is there a way we could observe them. It worked exactly the opposite way. Yeah, that's the beautiful part. We see it because we see it paying off. We, 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 we end up looking uh, out into the cosmos and observing the very things that we have uh, simulated uh, with math and physics. The great astrophysicist Subramanian Chandrasekhar uh, had uh, in a prologue to his book, The Mathematical Theory of Black Holes, he wrote, quote, The black holes of nature are the most perfect macroscopic objects there are in the universe. The only elements in their construction are our concepts of space and time. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to jump into the history of black holes. All right, we're back. So previously, we were just talking about how black holes began as an idea before they were observed in nature. They started as something that people worked out from principles they had established through other means rather than something we looked up into the heavens and saw. And uh, there's there's a really great book about this actually that I want to refer to because it's uh, one of the sources I used in working on this episode. But it's called Black Hole by Marcia Bartusiak. And it's a, it's a book just about the history of the idea of the black hole, how it went from the idea of gravity to something that we now do experiments on with, uh, with cosmological detection equipment. So the story of the black hole can really be connected, I think, to the broader story of the discovery of gravity. Uh, you know, we often don't even bother to think anymore, why do objects fall down and not up? But I, I sometimes wonder, like, do kids still have this thought? Do kids ask this sometimes or are they exposed to the theories we have of gravity before they even have the chance to ask that question naturally? Ooh, you know, that's a, that's a great question because I, I they, they certainly grasp the idea and the reality of gravity as just one of the realities of the, the natural world that they've yeah. evolved to thrive in. Now, of course we understand how it works, but why? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I've, my own personal experience, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with my son about gravity. Um, or at least not when he was old enough to uh, to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to make a mission of uh, explaining it to him. But he also he 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 may know already because he listens to to educational podcasts. So he when I mentioned black holes, he was like, "Oh yeah, black holes." I was listening to a Wow in the World about black holes. Mm-hmm. So he he already had a already had a leg up on the concept. Well, I mean, it's one of those things where most of us, I think even people who are aware of general relativity, we sort of have the idea that we understand how gravity works, but then sit down and try to put it into words. Right. Like explain it and then you start going, uh, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so it's one of those things that once you've heard it, you, you think you've got a grasp on it, but even then it can prove tricky to try to explain yourself. But so, you know, thousands or maybe millions of people must have stopped to wonder this all the time before we had a real answer. Why did things fall down instead of up. And for a long time, I think humans were led astray by this intuitive false cosmology of geocentrism. So if you believed like Aristotle, that the earth is the center of the universe, it makes a kind of intuitive sense that everything would fall toward the center, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then again, I sometimes wonder, like, why is that even intuitive? Why doesn't everything fall away from the center out to the edges? It just feels right enough that you can stop thinking about the question, basically. 
But then once you introduce the Copernican model, the, you know, the heliocentric model of the solar system and the idea that the Earth is not the center of the universe and in fact is no kind of privileged place at all. It's just another object floating around in space. Suddenly we really need an explanation for why objects fall to the ground rather than fly off in the opposite direction. And the bigger question is the force that causes objects to fall to the ground the same force that guides planets in their orbits around the sun? I, I like what you said about the geocentric uh, view because I think the geocentric view also kind of lines up with our basic egoic experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Like everything in the world ultimately breaks down to what I feel about it because I am the only the only uh, experience, the only worldview you know that I that I have one hundred percent. Uh, control of and one hundred percent vision through, mm -hmm. and, uh, and but then if someone were to say, actually, you're not the most important person in the world, is uh, this person over here is that throws everything out of uh, out of whack. Well, it makes you realize that your egoic view is not even necessarily a co coherent view; it's right. just something that you can do without having to think about. Right. And I would argue the same is largely true for geocentric physics. Uh, though actually in a funny way, a lot of really uh, intense thinking did go into constructing geocentric cosmologies and they, they, they look kind of beautiful. But anyway, coming back to gravity. So, so we know that, uh, for example, Johannes Kepler suggested that the sun exerted a magnetic force that guided the orbits of the planets. Isn't it weird to think back to a time when they were thinking, OK, how are the planets controlled in their orbit? Maybe it's magnetism. We know magnets exist. That's an attractive force. Maybe mm -hmm. that's what controls it. And in the 1630s, Descartes proposed that the orbits of the planets were guided by swirlings in the ether, which was this substance that was believed to occupy space. The ether would have been kind of like air or water, this fluid that occupied empty space. And you could have whirlpools or cyclones guiding objects in a circular pattern around a center of motion. And that would be what would guide orbits in the ether. But then, of course, we got to Newton. And so in 1687, Isaac Newton struck gold with the Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, or the Principia, as people usually call it these days. And it established the mathematical principles that correctly describe gravity and planetary motion, which in effect turn out to be the same thing. The motion of the planets is guided by momentum and gravity. And Newton calculated the inverse square law of gravity, meaning that as you move away from an object, its gravitational influence is diminished by the square of the distance. So what does that mean? That means if you double the distance between two objects, the gravitational force between them is reduced to a fourth. And if you quadruple the distance, the gravitational force between them is decreased to one-sixteenth. It's a square of the distance. So this indicates that the force of gravity is a constant force spreading out equally in all three dimensions. And so a key insight that, that Newton had is that gravity is universal. It applies equally to the objects we drop and throw here on Earth and to the objects we see in the night sky. Though it's worth pointing out at this stage that we still didn't know what gravity actually was other than this mutually attractive force between objects with mass. Newton wrote actually, quote, I have not as yet been able to deduce from phenomena the reason for these properties of gravity, and I do not feign hypotheses. And so Newton's laws were widely accepted, especially after they were used to correctly predict the reappearance of Halley's Comet. And this leads us to an English natural philosopher, geologist, astronomer, mathematician, dabbler in many domains named John Michel. That's right. Armed only with a Newtonian and obviously pre-Einsteinian understanding of gravity, uh, John Michel and Henry Cavendish uh, contemplated some pretty big cosmological questions, including the scale of the universe and the cycle of stars. Yeah, they were really ahead of their time in a way. John Michel for a long time was not necessarily recognized as one of the earliest people to think about black holes, but uh, but he did some interesting work. Yeah, and, and to put him in within a, you know, so you have the, the right time scale here. Uh, uh, John Michel lived uh, 1724 through 1793, and Cavendish lived 1731 through 1810. Okay, so what was the deal? What, how did they touch on black holes? All right, so even in their day, it was known that stars flared up, they subsided, and even vanished from the heavens. Mm -hmm. Uh, a popular theory of the day was that uh, they had dark spots on them, you know, much like the the spots that could be observed on our own sun, mm -hmm. and uh, that this would affect visibility. Though theories varied on what those dark spots were actually going to be, they might be dark valleys or ripples or 
peaks at a darker core underlying, uh, you know, uh, outer uh, uh, fluid or gases, mm-hmm. um, scum or rock-like bodies even. Uh, there <laughs> was all star scum. Yeah, star scum. <laughs> Your star scum. And then there was this cool idea that, that, uh, that was also thrown around that uh, you might have flattened stars. Huh. So these would have been, I guess, kind of like, Kind of like uh, lenses, yeah, you know? like rotating discs. Yeah, and so if uh, it depending on what how it was facing you, it would affect luminosity. So if it turned its edge to you, mm-hmm. there would obviously be a lot less uh, illumination. So it's not exactly the same principle, but I can see that being an interesting insight preceding the uh, the discovery of things like pulsars. Yeah, yeah. So they pondered the structure of the cosmos and the nature of stars, and eventually hit upon a rather I would say haunting idea, and this was in 1783. What if a star was was massive enough, large enough, that it attracted back upon itself all the light it emitted? In other words, so massive that light itself could not achieve escape velocity. This was the idea of the dark star. Whoa. Now, uh, we should give a little more context and explanation to what their thinking was here. But I have to say the name of this paper because it's crazy. Okay. The paper by John Michel in, uh, presented at the uh, Royal Society of London in, se- in 1783 and 84 was, quote, on the means of discovering the distance, magnitude, etc., of the fixed stars in consequence of the diminution of the velocity of their light, in case such a diminution should be found to take place in any of them, and such other data should be procured from observations as would be farther necessary for that purpose. That's a pretty good one. It's got a ring to it. He needs like a social media editor working with him. <laughs> Get that title down. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's the, what's the clickbait title of this paper? Ooh, oh, I don't know. You gotta you gotta somehow fit a um, you know a goblin star in there. I guess. Yeah, let's see. Uh, I tried to measure the mass of binary stars. You can't. You won't believe what happened next. <laughs> uh, by the way, the, the, they figured that uh, that if to have a dark star like this, this would be the case if you had a star as dense as our sun, but with a radius four hundred and ninety-seven times larger. Huh. And as such, it would be difficult to optically observe such a star. Yeah. Uh, so what what was Michel doing in this paper? As I just alluded to, his main goal, the more banal goal, was to measure the mass of binary stars. So he was armed with, as you said, Newton's gravitational laws. People were excited about Newton at the time, what you could learn by using Newton. So uh, the laws guiding planetary orbits, and, and he had those in hand. And with those, you could calculate the masses of two stars in a binary system by observing the way they orbit one another over the years. If you know how wide their orbit is and how long it takes them to orbit, you can estimate their mass. But uh, Michel also explored the limits of light. So he was working on this assumption that light was composed of what was known at the time as corpuscles. <laughs> that makes light sound very romantic, I know. Yeah, and kind of organic as well. Yeah, so the corpuscles of light, collections of particles, which given what we know about light today is sort of partially correct and partially incorrect, right? Like we know, uh, we know it's now given that light can be measured in particle units known as photons but can also behave like a wave. But operating on this earlier assumption that light was composed of these corpuscles, these particles, Michel noted that light, like anything else, must have an escape velocity. So the normal illustration of this is you stand on the surface of the earth, you throw a baseball straight up in the air at 100 kilometers an hour, it'll fall back down to the ground. And if you throw it at 200 kilometers an hour, it'll travel up farther, but it'll still fall back down. If you just keep throwing it up at greater and greater velocities each time, eventually it's going to reach a velocity where if it's at the right angle, it doesn't fall straight back down to the ground but instead can go into orbit around the planet. And if you keep throwing it straight up at a great enough velocity, eventually it will actually escape the planet's gravity and fly off into space and not fall back down to Earth. And specifically, how fast an object needs to be traveling to leave Earth's gravity is 11.2 kilometers per second. If you can go that fast, you can leave. If not, you're stuck here with the rest of us. Uh, And a funny aside here is that you ever think about the idea of a terrestrial alien planet with so much mass essentially that it prohibits the aliens who live there from practicing space exploration. 
One also, they're just so f- so stocky. They have trouble <laughs> with it. Yeah, I mean, who knows how that would change their culture and all that. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, you could imagine a more massive planet that had a greater escape velocity might just make it the case that you could never come up with a technology that could get you out of the planet's gravity well. This was my entire read on uh, the, the 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 horror film Phantasm by the way. Oh, yeah? Is that they have that portal that goes to another world. Well, how'd they get here in the first place? Through that portal. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess they sent the tall man in. The tall man is tall because he's supposed to be on a high-gravity uh, planet, and it, like, you know, straightens him out, makes him taller on our planet. And then they have to crunch those corpses down into dwarves mm-hmm. so that they can labor on the uh, on the, the high-gravity world. You know, it's it's a really smart concept. It, uh, it really gets at things that make you think... Uh... <laughs> Phantasm, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's just mysterious enough to get your brain uh, working, you know? Oh, you know when Silicon Valley saw that ball, they were all like, I got to design one of those. I can make that ball. I'll sphere, sell that the to death the death sphere? Yeah, I'll sell that to the <laughs> Pentagon. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, one day we'll see him. Uh, now, so coming back to uh, John Michel. So what he believed was that you've got these corpuscles of light and they, they've got an escape velocity as well. And what they have to do to shine away from a star is escape the star's gravity. And fortunately, as Michelle knew, light travels very, very fast. So this doesn't normally happen. But he realized, as we were saying, that if a star have, has enough mass, even according to this Newtonian model of physics, before we had relativity, before we had Einstein, even on Newtonian mechanics – you could imagine a star so big with so much gravity that even light could not escape it and would always get pulled back down. And like you said, Robert, the the number he came up with was that a star 497 times the escape velocity of our sun would prevent all light from leaving. And to read a quote from Michel's work, of the existence of bodies under these circumstances, we could have no information from sight. Yet, if other luminous bodies should happen to revolve about them, we might still perhaps from the motions of those revolving bodies infer the existence of the central ones with some degree of probability, as this might afford a clue to some of the apparent irregularities of revolving bodies, which would not be easily explicable on any other hypothesis. So Michel's planting a clue there for how we could detect black holes or objects that did not allow light to escape escape before we've even discovered relativity. And I want to just drive home again that, that this was the, the 18th century. Yeah. This is the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is, this is pretty out there thought for yeah, the time. Yeah. By, by far. And I should point out that uh, Sir William Herschel also argued on the basis of the particulate theory of light, the corpuscles, that nebulae could be made of uh, agglomerations of particles of light captured by gravity, sort of held in place by gravity. So essentially, we have the groundwork here for what would eventually become the concept of a black hole, even though they certainly were not calling it a black hole. No. And uh, one more thinker we should mention, somebody who often gets uh, credited maybe more often than Michel, or at least used to get credited more often than John Michel, is uh, Pierre-Simon de Laplace. So in 1796, with the upheaval of the French Revolution still in effect, uh, the French astronomer and general scholar, kind of Renaissance guy, Pierre-Simon de Laplace, published Exposition du Système du Monde, or The System of the World. And in this book, he hypothesized the existence of cores obscures, or hidden bodies, or dark bodies. Mm. I love those dark bodies yeah. out there. So, so he wrote, quote, a luminous star of the same density as the Earth and whose diameter should be 250 times larger than that of the sun would not, in consequence of its attraction, allow any of its rays to arrive at us. It is therefore possible that the largest luminous bodies in the universe may, through this cause, be invisible. Now, notice that Laplace estimated a different required size to prevent the escape of light. This is because he expected stars to have a different density than Michel did. But either way, I love that idea. So he's saying it's possible that the biggest things out there in the universe are completely invisible to us. We, We wouldn't even know they were there. Now, rounding up from this, we know that uh, Michel and uh, Laplace were certainly ahead of their time, but they were also wrong about a lot of stuff, just owing to the time that they lived. Like, they didn't know lots of things about physics and about astronomy that we did. When they imagined stars getting so big that no light could escape their gravity, they imagined, for one thing, stars scaling up simply by getting bigger at a constant density. And then they also imagined light being a projection of particles that would be slowed down by gravity. 
So let's complicate the picture with some Einstein. All right, let's do it. We're, we're into the 20th century now. Okay. During the opening decades of the 20th century, German theoretical physicist Albert Einstein enters the picture. He was born 1879, died 1955. And he gave us a new theory of gravitation, the general theory of relativity. And it entails the idea that massive objects distort space-time and we experience this as gravity. Okay, so this is a change in the idea of gravity. Instead of being a force that mm-hmm. that objects exert on each other, uh, general relativity imagines gravity as indentations in the geometry of the space-time we inhabit. That's right. Now, there's a there's a wonderful experiment that I always like to fall back on to kind of explain this. And in fact, there's a video of this on StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and I'll, I'll try and put a, a link to it on the landing page for this episode. But uh, basically, it involves taking a plastic sheet having it stretched out, generally like if you stretch it over a hula hoop, okay? And then you apply weighted balls onto the sheet. Uh-huh. So, you know, you might have something that's the size of a baseball, or up into, up, uh, up, scaling up to things about the size of, say, a bowling ball, mm-hmm. all right? And when you place those on the sheet, it distorts the sheet. It distorts the space-time that is the surface of that sheet. Right. So normal planets and stars might be things on the sheet sort of like baseballs or golf balls or Mm -hmm. something causing these small indentations where generally things can move around them and not – there wouldn't really be much of an issue until you got very close and then you'd start to kind of circle around or have your path diverted as you passed by one of them owing to the indentations they make in the topography of the sheet. Right. But imagine you've got, say, like a big hunk of depleted uranium, mm-hmm. and you put that on the sheet, like the densest thing you can come across. And it's going to bend the sheet down in this crazy kind of suction that will, uh, for a certain radius around it, pull all kinds of stuff in. Yeah, you try and roll a marble then across the sheet, and it doesn't stand a chance. It's yeah. It's going to be sucked in. It can't, it can't, say, roll past and just get its path diverted. Suddenly, things things will just get sucked all the way in and never come out. And so this, in essence, is the general theory of relativity. And again, it differs from the Newtonian model in which gravity was an innate force. Right, which Newton didn't know how to explain, and I respect he didn't try to explain. He just said, this is how it is. I'll write equations showing you how to solve for it and how to predict how it works, but I'm not going to say what it is. Now we've got a pretty idea what it actually is, and it's these these distortions in the geometry of space-time. Though a funny thing about that is I think how often we still talk about gravity as a force as if it were some kind of like magnetism attracting matter. I mean, I honestly think about it that way most of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, we have to fall back on on our experience and that ends up coloring uh, uh, what we think we know about the cosmos. Yeah, and so... uh, Einstein definitely put – he put together the theoretical framework for how general relativity works. But one thing you might wonder is like, okay, well, let's say we're really into Einstein's theory of general relativity. How would you ever test whether such a thing were true? You know, if you could do all of your Newtonian experiments just using Newtonian physics and get the right answers on Earth, how would you test to see whether Einstein's theory was actually better? So there did come along some demonstrations and one of them, one that proved very decisive for public opinion was in 1919 when the English astrophysicist Arthur Eddington carried out an experiment to test the predictions of Einstein's theory. And I think we've talked about this experiment on the show before. But one of the predictions of general relativity is that light passing directly by a massive object like a star should actually be bent by a specific predictable amount depending on how massive the object is and how close the light passes. And so a pretty easy way to test this would be by, say, taking a picture of the star field at night and noting where all of the stars are, getting the locations of those stars, and then watching what happens when the sun passes between the Earth and those stars. It should be, if Einstein's theory is right, that the light coming to us from the star behind the sun should get bent as it's coming right past the sun. So when it's right beside the edge of the sun, Mm -hmm. our view of it should be displaced and distorted by a very predictable certain small but certain amount. But part of the problem is, well, how do you test that? Like, can you usually look at the stars if you're looking also at the sun? Ah, uh, yes. You need something. You need something special to happen. Something that 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 blocks out the sun. If only there were uh, some other object in the sky that was just the right size to do that. And for, we're very fortunate to live in that laboratory by accident. So. 
Earth's, uh, Earth is very privileged in – here's one way that the Copernican principle seems to fail. Earth is very privileged in that our moon is just about the same size as the sun apparently from our perspective. Mm-hmm. So the moon can block out the sun's light during a solar eclipse. And if you wait for a solar eclipse, you actually could look at the stars that are shooting light at you from right beside the sun from your perspective. So the Eddington experiment waited for a solar eclipse when the moon passed in front of the sun and that eclipse came in – in May 1919, uh, passing over Eddington's experimental station on Principe Island off the western coast of Africa and also over some, uh, some other astronomers working in the Amazon rainforest. And so the eclipse dimmed the light from the sun, enough for Eddington and colleagues to take photos of the star field in the background. And they found that the sun did indeed bend the light from the stars right around it and the light was bent by the amount predicted by Einstein's general relativity. So this experiment was a huge international sensation. It was in all the newspapers and it made Einstein a celebrity. Kind of makes me wonder like what sort of scientific experiment would make headlines in major newspapers, like t- front page headlines in major newspapers today? Well, uh, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but I, I believe uh, gravitational waves uh, made some uh, some uh, headlines. Uh, they made some. I mean, yeah. like can you imagine them as like top banner, like beating out all the politics and everything like that? Yeah, it is It is difficult to, um, to imagine it, but yeah. I, I, I want to say we still have some some hits uh, on the way. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, so now we know that even though stars can't slow down light, one of the key features of Einstein's work is that the principle of uh, the speed of light in a vacuum never changes, right? We do know that very massive objects bend light as the light travels along its trajectory through space-time very near them. And this is where we are going to introduce somebody who changed the game – when it comes to black holes, and that is Carl Schwarzschild. We will discuss him when we come back from a break. All right, we're back. So, Robert, take us into the mind of Carl Schwarzschild. All right, so uh, Carl Schwarzschild was a German physicist and astronomer. Uh, he lived uh, only 1873 through 1916. Yeah, he died in the war. Yeah, now he, he and uh, I should say, they should point out, he, did, he died of illness, but he did still very much die during the, uh, the First World, World War. Uh, and he calculated the possibility of an Einsteinian dark star. Um, uh, he, he, like, did this while he was in the, in the service, I believe, Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, often it's described as him, like, being in the trenches. I think— Oh, is that real? <laughs> well, we like the—it's the rom, the rom, a romantic idea, right? The idea that we have someone that's in a literal pit, and they're in a—it's a time in, uh, in world history that, is, is, that feels like a pit. You yeah. Know, the, a, a, a time of just total war mm-hmm. uh, encompassing the earth, and it's seeming like we not we might not be able to climb back out of it. And here, this uh, this gentleman is contemplating the black hole. Yeah, as World War One is changing the social fabric of Europe and much of the world, uh, Schwarzschild here is changing the fabric of space time. Yeah, and as a, he Schwarzschild was a, a very. Uh, Impressive dude, though. He was, uh, again, he, he only lived to be 42 years of age. Uh, but during his short life, he made practical and theoretical contributions to astronomy. And uh, he used uh, general relativity equations to demonstrate celestial bodies within enough mass would have an escape velocity beyond the speed of light. I should also point out that, again, even though he, he died at the age of 42, he had his first theoretical physics paper published at the age of 16. Yeah, he. Uh, you get the impression that, like, you're... When you read about him, you're sort of in the presence of one of those brains. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, he was experimenting with different types of geometry for understanding the behavior of massive objects like stars. And par- part of what he was doing was trying to work out rigorous solutions to Einstein's equations. Einstein had sort of uh, done, done the, the simplified version of general relativity and he's like, oh, surely it will be really hard to work out all of the rigorous, you know, precise solutions of my equations. But uh, but Schwarzschild did, and he did this by using a system of spherical coordinates. Uh, Schwarzschild discovered that if you imagine the mass of a star compressed down to a great density around it in all directions, reaching out to a specific radius, later known as the Schwarzschild radius, would form this gravitational dead zone. Anything that went into the dead zone, whether it was matter, light, whatever, 
would never come out again. And this spherical dead zone came to be known at the time as the Schwarzschild sphere. Now, we call the boundary leading over into this zone today the event horizon, and that's where you get the movie title, of course. That's sort of the outer boundary of the zone of total influence of the black hole because inside this radius, inside the event horizon, Schwarzschild concluded that all radiation and matter passing into the sphere would become stuck. And of course, under general relativity, if you were flying into this sphere, outside observers would notice your time slowing down as you approach the sphere. And to those observers out there, you would appear to sort of stop as you crossed over. So to the people imagining this object, like what would they picture? Maybe according to this conception, anything entering the sphere of the Schwarzschild radius would seem to appear frozen forever in time at the moment it was about to cross over into the dead zone. Ooh, spooky. This made me think about uh, uh, one of the videos we watched from the world – or well, you were there at the event. But one that I watched from the World Science Festival this year had a uh, astrophysicist, Shep Doleman, uh, talking about black holes. And he said, quote, what happens in the black hole stays in the black hole. <laughs> yeah, I like that, uh, that, that That oftentimes you see the – especially the more modern physicists who've, who've written about black holes. They, they tend to have a, a sense of humor regarding their nature. mm mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's generally true. Like they, they don't get all <laughs> – well, I mean so here's what you can contrast that lighthearted approach with. Apparently some French-speaking astrophysicists uh, took to calling the Schwarzschild sphere the sphere catastrophique. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the sphere – that's a hard thing to say. Sphere catastrophique. I like the idea of this, of this as being the avant-garde French version of Event Horizon. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'd pay to see that. <laughs> I hope it still have Sam Neill. Now we go with the uh, Gerard Depardieu instead. Oh, yeah. yeah. OK. Yeah, it, would be, it would be a great version of Event Horizon where every scene they have fresh-baked bread. Yes. <laughs> now, one thing that's worth noting about this sphere of doom, the, the Schwarzschild sphere or the sphere catastrophique, it's not actually the same as the central object, the black hole itself. Uh, an example given in Marsha Bartusiak's black hole, our sun is about 1.4 million kilometers wide. If a star, the mass of our sun, were compressed down to a point, the sphere catastrophique surrounding it would be less than six kilometers across. If the mass of 10 suns were reduced to a point-like volume, its sphere catastrophique would be about 60 kilometers wide. And as we mentioned earlier, if our sun were to suddenly shrink down to that size, objects far outside the sphere would not suddenly be like sucked in or torn apart. Uh, the planets would continue orbiting just like they orbit the sun. Only, it's only much closer that things would really go crazy. But here's a really important point that we need to drive home. At this stage, even after Schwarzschild had done these, these calculations, most physicists and astronomers did not believe a black hole could exist in nature. Uh, Einstein just thought that Schwarzschild's sphere, sphere of doom thing was a sign there were still some things to work out in the theory. And Einstein did not think that black holes would be found in the actual universe. So at the time, it, it, the idea was it might have just been a mere ghost in the math. Kind of a, a, a remainder that had to be figured out later on. Yeah. So you do the math and you say, oh, this is a strange finding. But mm-hmm. people, I think, just assumed, well, so we'll find out something in the future that will make sense of all this. Yeah. You know, we'll have some kind of observation, some update to the theory, something that will eventually let us know, oh, OK, there's not actually such a thing as a black hole. They weren't calling it a black hole at the time. But there's not actually one of these to be found in nature. Something prevents this from happening. Uh, so remember Arthur Eddington, the English astrophysicist who did the eclipse experiment about general relativity. In his 1926 book, The Internal Constitution of the Stars, he wrote, I think, kind of dryly invoking some awesome imagery, I might add, quote, A star of 250 million kilometers radius could not possibly have so high a density as the sun. Firstly, the force of gravitation would be so great that light would be unable to escape it, the rays falling back to the star like a stone to the earth. Secondly, the red shift of the spectral lines would be so great that the spectrum would be shifted out of existence. Thirdly, the mass would produce so much curvature of the space-time metric that space would close up round the star, leaving us outside, i.e. nowhere. So the idea is that it would suddenly contain all of space and then we couldn't be in space anymore. Well, when you put it like that, it does sound like like a mathematical problem that has to be worked out later on. 
Uh, but of course, Eddington was wrong about that. And even Schwarzschild himself didn't think you would find these mathematical objects in nature. He thought that sort of the outward pressure of stars would prevent them from collapsing down to uh, to a volume smaller than that sphere catastrophique. And remember, he, he was not setting out to posit the existence of black holes. That wasn't his goal. They just simply popped up as this weird byproduct of him using general relativity to calculate the gravitational fields generated by different kinds of massive bodies in space. Now, we have to stress here that Schwarzschild didn't call it a black hole. He called it a discontinuity. Yeah. What did Eddington call it? Oh, he he called it a magic circle. Oh, that's really good. (laughs) I kind of wish we'd stuck with that. Yeah. Uh, Though that, of course, has its own baggage. Uh, You expect uh, like elves to come flying out of it, right? Uh Uh-huh. Uh, no, but the, the the term black hole was coined later still by American theoretical physicist John Archibald Wheeler, who lived 1911 through 2008. Did he coin it or was he just the first one to start using it? Well, he uh, – so the story that I read is that he was in a conference in New York City in 1967 and he apparently seized on a suggestion shouted from the audience <laughs> – I'm a, I'm a, I, could, I, I couldn't find out what the exact shout was, but I'm assuming it was something like, call it a black hole, John, or that's a black hole, something uh-huh. to that effect, or just maybe a chant, black hole, black hole. So he was like trying to work the audience. He's like, throw out some names. Come on, give me some ideas. And people are like, magic circle. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, nah, nah, no magic circles here. Yeah, it's, it's like improv. All right, yeah. somebody give me a theme and we'll, we'll construct um, uh, some sort of uh, theoretical uh, uh, physics structure out of it. How about Dark Star? <laughs> so uh, in his uh, autobiography. <laughs> uh, sphere Catastrophe. Sphere Catastrophe. I would like to see an improv sketch around the Sphere Catastrophe. Uh, so in his autobiography, Wheeler wrote that uh, the black hole, quote, teaches us that space can be crumpled like a piece of paper into an infinitesimal dot that time can be extinguished like a blown-out flame, and that the laws of physics that we regard as sacred, as immutable, are anything but. Which I think sums it up rather nicely. Yeah, uh, I like that. Well, I mean, it also, Wheeler, there, he's speaking uh, Einsteinianisms, right? Like, the Mm -hmm. the whole idea of general relativity is that we used to think, oh, space and time, those are the things that are constant and immutable, and other stuff can, can get moved around, and we found out through relativity, no, well, the speed of light in a vacuum might be constant, but space and time, you can mess all, you can mess with them a lot. <laughs> and uh, Wheeler Wheeler is carrying that torch. So maybe that's going to be where we have to wrap up today. But the big question left lingering for us to explore next time is how did this mathematical curiosity, this sort of like weird artifact of people trying to solve problems on paper, become a feature that scientists actually think exists out in the physical world? And how do we detect them if they do exist? You will find out next time. In the meantime, <laughs> however, uh, be sure to head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That is where you will find all the episodes of the podcast. You'll find links out to our various social media accounts as well. And hey, I want to remind everyone, if you want to support our show, uh, a great way to do it is to rate and review wherever you get your podcast. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 